Um, yeah, today's reading is actually fairly lengthy, so it starts at uh, chapter 18, verse 19, and it goes through to the end of chapter 19. So, here we go. Now, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Job told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. And the king said, If he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, Look, another man running alone. The king said, He must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against the Lord the King. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Job was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he wept, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Job went into the house to the king and said, Today you have, you have humiliated all your men. You have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. 
This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, who we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah, and so they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, returned you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his fifteen sons and twenty servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gerah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Should Shimei put to death for this? He cursed the lord's anointed. And David replied, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he said, My lord the king, since I was your servant and, 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 and am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and I will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Zeba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything, now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Barzillai, 
the Gileadite also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. He had provided, the, provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, How many more years will I live? that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king. I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can you still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him whatever you wish. The king said, Kimham shall, shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever you wish and anything you desire from me I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan and the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell and Barzillai returned to his home. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you, why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. Well, that's all pretty straightforward. I don't think we need a sermon today. <laughs> um, Phil, I'm going to double your pay, brother. That was amazing. Yeah, what a champion. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. Might have to flick back a page, but uh, starting from 2 Samuel 18, verse 19, I'll lead us in prayer and we get stuck into it together. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Please give us uh, the ability to concentrate now, to set aside distractions, to rejoice and to tremble at your word and to be strengthened by it, to be moulded more into uh, the likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Of the very great number of things that make modern day Judaism vastly different from Christianity, the number one item would have to be that Jews reject the notion that Jesus is the Messiah. It only takes a very quick glance at a Google search to learn that something like, quote, Jewish eschatology holds that the coming of the Messiah will be associated with a specific series of events that have not yet occurred, including the return of Jews to their homeland and the rebuilding of their temple, a messianic age of peace and understanding during which the knowledge of God fills the earth. And since Jews believe that none of these events occurred during the lifetime of Jesus, nor have they occurred afterwards, he is not the Messiah for them. 
But according to Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, is this a fair set of criteria upon to which you would assess whether or not Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah? Uh, whilst most of us, I'm going to assume, have little, if any, contact with, with a Jewish person, we'd still greatly benefit from gaining an understanding of what the Old Testament itself actually sets up as messianic expectation, not least because, A, it'll increase our relational knowledge of Jesus, who is our Lord, uh, not also, least, because it'll give us uh, a greater appreciation of the age in which we live, but also because it'll help us be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have to anyone who might want to know, be it Jew or Gentile, uh, about the idea that Jesus fulfills the requirements of the Old Testament messianic expectations. And would you believe that one of the biggest and most important biblical criterion for the identity of the Messiah is one that's actually clearly illustrated and exemplified in the life of King David as recorded for us in today's lengthy and somewhat dramatic passage of Scripture. As hopefully you can recall from last week, if you were here, David's rebellious son Absalom had tried to violently take over the throne for himself. After a time in exile, David and his men had just been victorious in putting down Absalom's coup, which included the killing of Absalom himself, even though David had ordered his men to keep him alive. We re-enter the story now, point one on your outline if you're taking notes, when David's successful men are working out how the good news of victory will be delivered to David on account of the fact that it also includes the obviously not so good news that Absalom had been killed. Uh, one of David's loyal servants, a guy named Ahimaaz, wants to be the one to deliver the news. But Joab, the commander of David's army, says to him, verse 20, you are not the one to take the news uh, today. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today. Why? Because the king's son is dead. Joab assumes that Ahimaaz wants to be the bearer of only good news, but he knows that that cannot be possible today because, as he informs Ahimaaz now, Absalom has been killed. Instead, Joab sends someone who might be seen as a little bit more politically and relationally neutral, a servant who, who all we're told about him is he's a Cushite rather than a, a fellow Israelite, and who was an eyewitness, apparently, of the death of Absalom, verse 21, then Joab said to a Cushite, go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. But Ahimaaz presses Joab to still be allowed to run to deliver the message. Joab thinks Ahimaaz wrongly thinks that he's going to get some kind of reward. But eventually he does let Ahimaaz go. Maybe he's thinking that the time they've spent arguing about it gave the Cushite enough of a head start that the Cushite's going to get to him first anyway. But Ahimaaz, being a native, knows the territory better, and so he takes a shorter route and he outruns the Cushite. Which makes us wonder, well, why was Ahimaaz so keen to go? And we're actually going to find that out in just a minute. But for the time being, the writer, who's very much a historian, kind of puts us as the readers with David or in the place of David. Even though we know what's happened, we're kind of... We're sitting with David waiting for the news to be delivered, which is kind of scary. Uh, remember just as last week, Absalom was stuck in the tree and we were told literally he was suspended between heaven and earth. It was kind of like a very 
uh, sort of a vivid way of putting that his, his cause hangs in the balance. Well, now, verse 24, while David was sitting, notice, between the inner and outer gates, like things are happening in the, in the balance for him. Uh, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king, notice, and reported it. And the king said, if he's alone, he must have good news, which is probably conventionally right. And the runner came closer and closer. It's fascinating that he gives us that detail so you sort of feel how David must have been feeling. We feel the tension ourselves as that runner gets closer and closer. Will David still have a kingdom? And will his son be alive? Given that there's only one runner, as David observes, it's, it is actually conventionally likely to be a good report. But then verse 26, the watchman saw another runner. And he called down, notice not to the king now, but to the gatekeeper. I think he might have been a bit, oh, better, can't be direct with David. Look, another man running alone. Of course, David's close enough to hear it. And so we continue verse 26. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. Which sadly to us starts to sound like David's doing a bit of wishful thinking. But then, thankfully, the watchman notices something promising. Verse 27, the watchman said, it seems to me the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's observing the gate of this guy running. Uh, he's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news, which sounds wonderful and therefore horribly tragic. But of course, that leaves David and us worrying about what the second man is, is actually going to say. And sure enough, Ahimaaz has good news. Verse 28, then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. Literally, shalom. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. Well, that's good. But of course, there's something that David is just burning to find out. It's much more important. Verse 29, the king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion. Just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. As at this point where I think, I'm not 100% certain, but I, I think it's most likely that we see a rather noble motive of Ahimaaz. You see, he had been told that the, that the king's son was dead. He, he'd been told that. And it's reasonable to assume that there had been some kind of commotion with Job and his men about how to deal with David's possible response to the news that they'd killed Absalom. But the effect of Ahimaaz's words here would have been to prepare David for the possibility that his son was dead. Now, that's a, that's a cold comfort, but it's probably what Ahimaaz sees as he's only shot at, at maybe even slightly softening the blow of what David is about to discover and so as we know the the Cushite then arrives and although doing it diplomatically and with a positive spin he delivers the news that Absalom is dead and it results in frankly one of the most heart-wrenching uh, laments that we have in the Bible verse 33 the king was shaken and if you've got an ESV a better translation the king was deeply moved he went up to the room over the gateway and wept as he went. He said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is, 
And therefore, in a sense, we are confronted with the horrible reality that it's extremely difficult to satisfy both the demands of justice, but also the demands of love. It is so stark that we quite literally see the king of Israel wishing he could die for the sake of his enemy. David's deep mourning also presents a big problem for the stability of Israel at this point. Instead of a victory celebration with their king, it has meant that his army have been made to feel shame unexpectedly. And it's possible that this would test or even break their loyalty to David. They've been roughing it with him during the time in exile, right? So it's a big slap in the face. And so Joab, being the man of action that he always is and was, goes to David to sort this problem out. And even though Joab is over the top and seems rather lacking in emotional intelligence, how he rebukes David still actually has many what I've called grains of truth. Uh, that David needs to hear. So from verse 5 of chapter 19, then Joab went into the house uh, to the king and said, today you've hum humiliated all your men who have just saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you'll be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now, like I said, over the top, not emotionally intelligent, but there is actually some truth to this. Absalom really did lead a very aggressive and offensive rebellion against David. The whole sleeping with the concubines on the roof, that was a disgustingly low blow. And whilst David certainly didn't hate his men, in terms of appearances, his absence could really have been a, a serious affront to them. So just as, if you remember a couple of weeks back, just as Ahithophel had previously painted a threatening scenario and then given his advice, well, so now Joab, having painted the threatening scenario to David, goes ahead with his counsel. Verse 7, now, go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. Again, stated like a punch in the face, but he kind of has a point. Verse 8, and so the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Now, we're not told that David said anything. Maybe just sitting in the gateway was the best he could do, given how depleted his emotional energy must be at this point. What is clear is that as a leader of the people of God, he actually really has no choice but to be a sacrificial leader. He needs to do what's right and helpful for his people even when it means carrying, in this case, a very huge burden on his own. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope you hear me being as objective as I possibly can when I say I think it's absolutely wonderful that so often in our prayer times, when someone leads in prayer, we pray for those who are in positions of leadership in our church. I remember once asking uh, my older Christian mentor about what I should do if I've had a fight with my wife 
on Sunday morning. And then I'm going to get up and preach, exhorting people to holiness and love when there's a good chance that I'm the one that's been unholy and loving. And so with the already churned up guts, because you feel dreadful when you had a fight, then you're going to churn them up even more because you feel like a fraud and a hypocrite when you preach in front of a group of people. I said to him, what should I do? And his answer was both right and helpful, and I've held to it this day. You thankfully, you, I just want you to know, this is not a regular occurrence. Like this, you know. <laughs> we're, we're fine. Anyway. <laughs> But his answer was right and helpful. He said, well, it's not the fault of the congregation that you might have put your foot in it with your wife. They deserve your best. They haven't done anything wrong. Under God, you should do the same as you always did, just like you would at any other time. You should preach with love and conviction. Your job, therefore, is to suck it up and suffer and endure that horrible pain and the horrible feeling of feeling like a hypocrite. That's yours. That's not theirs. Because a true leader is a servant. Now, good advice. Obviously, it pales into insignificance when you compare that kind of problem with David's loss of a son and still having to lead. And that in turn also pales into insignificance when you compare it with Jesus who bore the burden of entering into the fallen world and taking all our sin upon himself and then suffering God's wrath at the cross such that both the justice of God and the love of God would be revealed and satisfied and in order to serve his people. But back to David. Taking Joab's right, though heavy-handed advice, didn't mean that political decisions needed to trump all relational considerations. If only the whole social media world would work that one out. In fact, in his return to kingship, David made it clear that operating relationally was more important than operating politically. All throughout the tribes of Israel, people were saying to one another that they should be reinstating David as king, because, you know, Absalom's dead. But it's a bit difficult because there were people in Judah, David's own tribe, David, some of them, his own family, his own flesh and blood, who had sided with or aided and abetted Absalom. So David, therefore, had to make the first move. The death of his son burdening him, David still had to make the first move, which was to say to the former servants of Absalom from his own tribe in Judah, hey, you guys, you're part of my family, you're my people, and I reckon it's right that therefore you take the lead in reinstating me as king. I'll not hold anything against you. And so, verse 14 of chapter 19, he won over the hearts of the men of Judah, just like Absalom had won over their hearts at the beginning of his rebellion. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan, that's the sort of the outer border of the promised land, right? He's going to step into his own territory. Now, the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan, i.e. to make a visible demonstration of putting David back on the throne, a bit of a, a kingly procession, if you like. When David finally crossed the Jordan back into Israelite territory, verse 40, all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. 
But this caused a problem with those other tribes of Israel, the tribes outside of Judah. You see, they seem to think that David prioritising his own family and his own tribe meant that he had a lesser interest in, in ruling over the other tribes. Now, of course, that is completely untrue. It was relationally important that those in Judah, many of whom had been instrumental in Absalom's revolt, should be the ones over whom David is, I guess, most visibly reinstated as king, which in this context means reconciled. The fact that he was most publicly reinstated by Judah did not mean that he was any less interested in being king over all the other tribes of Israel, but Israel didn't get it. Verse 43 then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel, and in this case, they sort of right to do so. You see, when God's Messiah, God's anointed one, God's king takes his throne, there is something right about him confirming his victory with his own people first. You might even expect that the good news of his reign might be given first to the Judah, first to the Jews, first to Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Still awake? Thought you might be. Last point, point four. As David is reinstated as king, he now begins to clean up the mess to reward those who had been faithful to him, including those who were just now repenting of their rebellion against him. Uh, Shimi, who Adam told us is how we pronounce his name, Shimi, remember that guy who'd thrown stones and rocks and bagged out David as he walked along, right? Uh, he realised he'd been a complete moron. So verse uh, 16 of chapter 19, Shimi, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah, I bet he did, to meet King David. <laughs> with him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Zeba, the steward of Saul's household, who had deceived David, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan. You get the, you get the feeling that this is like really intense for them, right? They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over to do whatever he wished. When Shimi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord left the king, uh, lord the king left Jerusalem. Please Remember my sin no more. May the king put it out of his mind, verse 20, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord, the king. And thus we have a picture, mildly comical, but nonetheless a real picture of genuine repentance. He knows he's got no leg to stand on before the Lord's anointed. All he can do is acknowledge his sin and beg for mercy. And that is exactly what God's true chosen king wants to reward. And uh, he does so uh, forcefully. Verse 21, then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, 
Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? And so the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. The king will even fight for his restoration. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus... Uh, I can assure you that he also is so patient and kind that he's actually itching to forgive you of your sin and rebellion. Please turn back to him now before he extends his heavenly victory on earth, which could happen at any time. And if you remain his enemy, then it'll be too late to do anything except remain his enemy into eternity. Of course, as you hopefully remember from uh, the, the excellent reading from Phil, both Mephibosheth and Barzillai also found reward on account of David's return to power. I won't go through those accounts for the sake of time, but it is just worth noticing that after David suffered in the conquest of his enemy and returned victorious as king, that the string of people who came to him were either faithful or, or who had just now repented of being faithless, and all of them received forgiveness and reward. It's this sort of concentrated point in the narrative where the once suffering, now reinstated David is seeing repentance and forgiveness beginning with his own tribe who occupied Jerusalem. It ought to make us realise that Jesus, centuries later, probably knew what he was talking about when he was chatting with two men on the Emmaus Road who no longer believed that he was the Christ because he'd suffered and died. And Jesus said to them words to the effect of, the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory so that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Given what we've read about David, it looks to me to be a reasonable conclusion to draw about what you ought to expect of someone that God is showing to be the Messiah. And not surprisingly, Jesus did do that whole suffering, dying, repentance thing, and he, he did it in the biggest way imaginable. The, the actual verse in Luke 24, one of the most important verse in Luke, uh, it says, uh, to those men on the Emmaus Road, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning with my own people, beginning in Jerusalem. It's not a one-for-one one comparison with what happened with David. David, you might have noticed, didn't die and rise again. Mind you, he did claim that the Lord would not let his Holy One see decay. So it's absolutely astonishing that modern-day Jews are so quick to discount any of the Messianic criteria that Jesus invokes, especially given how uncannily close it is to the greatest Messiah Israel had outside of Jesus. Maybe it's because they haven't had their minds opened so that they can understand the scriptures. That, of course, is not to look down on modern-day Judaism. In fact, the Bible says that followers of Jesus ought to be especially loving of the Jews, for it's their heritage. 
that has provided us with our Messiah and our understanding about his person and work. Furthermore, one of the reasons Gentiles are saved is actually to provoke elect Israelites to envy and through that process to bring them to Christ. But an obvious way of loving Jews is praying that they'd come to know Jesus as the Messiah. We ought to celebrate the fact that Israel's greatest king before Jesus, namely David, provided his people with a template of what to expect when Messiah Jesus himself showed up. I'm strongly one who advocates for praying for peace in the modern-day nation-state of Israel, yes, especially at the moment, but even more strong in praying that elect Israelites would come to know the truth about their Messiah, that God showed them in David, the king of Israel, David, Melech, Israel. Finally, just as the 11 tribes outside of Judah needed to realise they benefited from his kingship no less than his own tribe, so too we need to remember that with Christ there is no favouritism. The fact that Jesus came first for the lost sheep of Israel, the fact that the gospel is first in terms of applicability for, uh, for the Jew and, and then to the Gentile, Romans 1.16, it's no way an indication that not all are one in Christ. It's actually wonderful to know that you and I have a Lord, a Messiah, who prioritises relationship over politics and who makes all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, part of his eternal, uh, eternal family. He gives us the same spirit by which he calls God Father, so we call God the same Father. He's our friend and our brother, regardless if we are Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, whatever. You, each individual here, is no less valuable to Jesus than any other believer in this room or in the entirety of his worldwide church. Uh, which is why in the kingdom, uh, special treatment is only ever treatment to those who have some kind of ailment, you know, we, because we love one another in terms of our salvation and being children of God. There's no such thing as special treatment, all are one in Christ Jesus. The really comforting thing about that is no matter how badly you feel you're doing spiritually, and every week there's at least one person who shows up to church thinking, oh man, I've sucked this week. No matter how badly you feel you're doing spiritually, you have as much share in King Jesus as anyone else. The rubber hits the road thing about that is that your service to God and therefore God's people is also as valuable as anyone else's, regardless of what kind of service it is. So um, make sure you get on board for that picnic in a couple of weeks, because we're going to be thinking about the future of our church, and that requires all of us in various ways that God has gifted to, to serve one another and therefore build his kingdom. Let's conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you made it clear through uh, what David endured and experienced, uh, what it means to be the anointed. And we thank you that that shows a wonderful template for the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ who we've come to know and therefore uh, have joined your eternal family and kingdom. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for uh, the many Jews uh, who live in the, the nation state of Israel at the moment that it will please you to grant peace and security, especially in the, uh, the current and horrendous conflict. But even more so, we pray uh, that they would 
uh, be provoked to envy about what all Christians have in knowing the Messiah of Israel and that through that they might come to find genuine peace and to become members of the heavenly Jerusalem. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.